reading an extended portion of Genesis 17 uh, before we go to the passage in the book of Colossians. Title of my sermon today, Buried with Christ in Baptism. Uh, because we are dealing with uh, the concept of circumcision, I thought it would be helpful for us to read uh, the Abrahamic covenant from Genesis 17. I'm going to be reading the first 13 verses of Genesis 17 and then skipping to later portions of the chapter, verses 18 through 19 and then 26 and 27. So let's begin in Genesis chapter 17. Let us hear once again the very words of God. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer will your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations." I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your descendants after you in their generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And then beginning in verse 18, And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Then God said, No, Sarah your wife shall bear you a son and shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And then in verse 26, That very same day Abraham was circumcised and his son Ishmael and all the men of his house, born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. And now let's go to our text for today, Colossians chapter 2. I'll be reading verses 11 through 15. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
He has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, triumphing over them in it. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, as we come to this portion of your word, we are, we are reminded that you are sovereign over not just our lives, but the ages and how those ages would reflect uh, the work of our Savior Jesus Christ uh, from the time of the earliest covenants that you made with Adam and Noah And today, as we've read with Abraham, everlasting covenants that would not end and that that came to their highest fruition in Christ Jesus in the new covenant. We are thankful that we are part of that new covenant by your will, that you have drawn us out of darkness into your marvelous light, that you have removed our sins as far as the east is from the west, that you have promised to us eternal life in the resurrection of your Son, And that by faith, all of these things can be realized. And so, Father, as we do trust You for them, knowing that You are always faithful to Your promises, that You never slumber or sleep with regard to Your promises, but that You keep them for eternity, we rest in that, knowing that we are Your children, that You bought us with a price, the price of the blood of our Savior Jesus, which was sufficient to bring redemption for us. And we are grateful. Bless us now as we consider this passage and the the importance of baptism in covenant keeping. And we ask this in your son's name and for his sake. Amen. Well, brethren, we've been progressing through Paul's epistle to the Colossians and have this Sunday come to chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. Uh, Here Paul connects very succinctly the Old Testament sacrifice of circumcision to the New Testament sacrament of baptism. As I pointed out last Sunday, by God's providence, by His sovereign guidance, we have come to this uh, particular passage on a day when we are going to uh, witness a baptism in our own church of a covenant child. So uh, God shows us both uh, uh, in the Scriptures a didactic uh, understanding of, of this uh, sacrament, but also a very visible one today uh, in, the, in the life of our church, and we're grateful. This doctrine that's being taught by the Apostle Paul uh, is being practiced uh, in our church today, as I've mentioned, and so the orthodoxy, our understanding, our right understanding of the Scriptures is being uh, brought out in our orthopraxy today, and so we talk about that often. A uh, f- faithful practice to God follows a faithful understanding of the Scriptures. And so today, we want to look at baptism a little more particularly. Before we look carefully at our passage in Colossians 2, I must relate to you all, to you all some of the distinctives of the time in which Paul was writing. Uh, because the struggles in the church in that first century that, that uh, they were experiencing aren't terribly dissimilar from our own. So if I point those out, I think it would be helpful uh, for you to have that in mind as we think about uh, the circumstances today. In the first century AD, 
The church in its infancy was just beginning to take on its own identity apart from Judaism. In the first century, prior to the fall of Jerusalem, uh, Christianity was considered a sect of Judaism, a a, a part of it. And uh, in large measure, it was, because it was only uh, when the gospel went forth, you'll recall uh, Jesus' commandment to his disciples in the Great Commission, uh, go to uh, Jerusalem, Judea, and then the uttermost parts of the world. it begins at a place where there's a concentration of, of Jews, but then uh, quickly spreads beyond that to the whole world. But in the first century, its identity was really uh, tightly uh, uh, hinged to that of Judaism. That would change in 70 AD when Jerusalem would fall. Judaism in its, in its uh, monolithic form uh, became uh, scattered. And even the church would scatter too. Uh, but, and for, uh, actually for our benefit, the church scatters at that time. The diaspora of the church, the dispersion of the church, brings about the gospel going forth to many, many peoples, far beyond uh, the Jews. Uh, Paul is writing to the Colossian, and this church is being plagued by an error because of the, the closeness of Christianity to Judaism. And, and what is that error? Well, it was the error of legalism uh, by the Judaizers. They're not the only church in the New Testament that's suffering from this, the Colossian church. Uh, we also see that the church in Galatia suffers from it and the church in Ephesus suffer from the same problem. The Judaizers were saying to the church, for you to be part of the church, you men must be circumcised as was the case in the Old Covenant. And that was an error, and Paul is dealing with that very error in this passage more completely in, the, in the, his letter to uh, the Galatians, but also into the, in the latter part of his letter to the Ephesians. Now I want us to try to look at this situation from an overhead view, not, not from an outer space view, that's too far away, but just from a, a perspective from above, to see what the circumstance is. God has had a covenant with his people in the lineage of Abraham for nearly 2,000 years, approximately 1,900 years at, this, at the time of this writing. Uh, it, it was 1,900 years prior to that time that this Abrahamic covenant was given by God to Abraham. That's why I, I had us read Genesis 17 at the beginning of the, of the lesson today. And God has required of his covenant people a sign of entrance into his covenant with Abraham. And that covenantal sign being circumcision. So for 2,000 years, these people have known nothing else but the sign of circumcision as entrance into the covenant people. So we've got to keep that in mind. Jesus the Messiah then came and fulfilled the sign of circumcision by his death on the cross. And that's what Paul's teaching us in our passage. We'll look at that in just a moment. He shed his blood once for all, the scriptures teach us, according to Hebrews 7.27, 9.12, and 10.10, becoming the bloody ritual, which is likened to the cleansing ritual of circumcision in the Old Covenant. And that's what Paul is speaking of here in our passage. Colossians chapter 2. We, 
we don't quite look at circumcision as a cleansing ritual. But that's what it was in the Old Covenant. It's a cleansing ritual. It's to show that, uh, like Adam and Eve being clothed with animal skins, that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Their sin, their sin was covered in the Old Covenant in the, in the, the days of uh, the garden. Uh, they're expelled from the garden. They're kept from the tree of life. Uh, but they are covered with animal skins. The animals had, to, sh- had to, to die and shed their blood for this provision for Adam and Eve. In the Old Covenant, blood had to be shed for the remission of sins. Not, not in the same sense uh, that we know Christ dying on the cross. That was the remitting work of sin. But there's a picture that points to that. And circumcision was that picture. The, the, the male heads of the families had to be circumcised in their foreskins, this bloody ritual which would point to the forgiveness of sins. It is He, Jesus, that then changes the initiatory sign of entrance into the covenant community from circumcision to baptism. Well, why is that? Because His death was a once-for-all death. No longer would blood have to be shed for the remission of sin to either point to it or actually remit the sin. It's all been culminated in Christ. So Christ then says, there will be a new sign of coming into the covenant community, and that sign is baptism. And we see this in Matthew 28, when he commissions his disciples to go into all the world, baptizing the nations. Baptizing the nations. This is the new entrance, the new uh, initiatory right into the covenant community. <coughs> Excuse me. So here, here in the book of Colossians, we see that the, the, the old covenant people in Colossae are trying to understand what should be the practice of the new covenant church. Do we follow the Judaizers who are teaching that circumcision is still necessary, or do we shift to the teaching solely of Christ where only baptism is? is the initiatory sign, not the bloody ritual. (coughs) They are assuming there's a continuity between the Old and New Covenants. This is what's interesting about the passage. Paul is talking about a continuity. He is saying there is something from that Old Covenant ritual that's happening even in the New Covenant with Christ. And he he asserts, as we'll look at in a moment, that the very death on the cross is a form of circumcision for the New Testament church. Christ's death on the cross. It's a circumcision without the, the, the hands of men. That God is circumcising hearts through the work of Christ on the cross. So we'll look at that here in a few minutes. So the Apostle Paul's writings in the first century AD has had to deal with this problem of various churches, Galatia, Ephesus, Colossae, And Paul is carefully teaching the church here in Colossians 2 that there is continuity between the covenants, but it's not the outward practice of the sacrament of circumcision. That's not where the continuity lies. And that's what we're going to focus our attention on. The continuity is in the work of God in the hearts of those who are covenant community members. And God does that by His own will, where He opens our hearts and our minds to this work, the work of circumcising or changing the heart of stone into a heart of flesh, as is described in Ezekiel 36. 
He's doing that work, and, he's, and Paul is likening that to circumcision. He's cutting away the stone, and he's giving us a heart of flesh, the flesh that remains. All right, with those things in mind, how does this relate to the church in the 21st century A.D.? We don't really struggle with the notion of circumcision. Although, <coughs> I will say, when, I, when families, when new children are born into the male children are born into the families, I often get questions about circumcision uh, for those new children. And suffice it to say, for those of you who are still hoping to have children, haven't had any yet, for those that uh, uh, anticipate some of these things in the future, let me say this. The Bible does not require circumcision, but neither does it prohibit it. And so there are some benefits to that physically. And so some families choose to go, up, go forward that, with that. Others do not. All right, enough said for that. But I do want to talk more particularly about how Paul deals with circumcision here and how it relates to our 21st century circumstance. The focus has changed in Paul's day, from circumcision to this new sign, baptism. And so circumcision should no longer be used. That is not our issue today, but there is a similarity between what happened then and what happens in the church today. It's a dilemma that we, face, we must face head on as the church. How much of the old covenant remains and how do we determine what does remain of the old covenant? How much of it does remain? And how do we determine what remains as part of our practice, our orthopraxy? Obviously here, circumcision has come to an end. Paul speaks of that several times in various books of his writings. And so that's come to an end. So that continuity has, has come. There is no continuity in the sense that it, that particular sacrament remains. But there is an initiatory sacrament that follows on to circumcision. So there's a sense in which uh, there is continuity. There must be a sacrament of God to come into the covenant community. The form has changed, but the necessity of the sacrament hasn't. And so that continuity remains. So what is this particular dilemma? I've mentioned that we have to answer the question, how much of the old covenant remains? After all, we've just read from Genesis 17 that God has made an everlasting covenant with Abraham. An everlasting covenant with Abraham. And if you look at all five major Old Testament covenants, whether it be the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, uh, the, the uh, Adamic covenant, all five of them have an everlasting aspect to them. So there must be some continuity. Where does it fall? How do we know how to deduce what is still remaining? Well, the evangelical church has basically come to settle on two possible answers to these questions. Well, how to, what remains? The first being that unless the Old Testament has been, uh, the first notion in the evangelical church is that the Old Testament has been discarded as a normative revelation, and we are only to do those things that are taught in the New Testament and that are specifically commanded or taught by example from the New Testament. That's one position, that the Old Testament, one theologian says that the evangelical church regards it as a discarded first draft. It's as if God got it wrong in the Old Testament. But the New Testament, God got it right in his son, Jesus Christ. 
That's one version of the modern church's uh, look at it. That's not my version. That is one version. Unfortunately, I held that version for many years, but I don't hold it any longer. The second version, or the second possibility, is that there is continuity between the covenants, and the way we determine that is if the, by, the, the New Testament revelation abrogates or modifies the Old Testament revelation, meaning the New Testament has to modify it or, or put, away, put it away for us to embrace the change. Otherwise, there's continuity between both Testaments. And that's the position that I've taken and uh, the elders of our church have taken as well. Well, these are two very different approaches. Position one assumes a radical discontinuity between the Testaments, while the second position assumes a continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, with the New Testament informing us of the changes in the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul most definitely links baptism and circumcision together in our passage. And so let's go to our passage now and begin working through it. Verse 11, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So Paul says, in him you were also circumcised. So he's not, he's not saying circumcision doesn't happen any longer. He's just per, t- turning the focus to a different place. It's not the foreskin of the flesh that needs to be circumcised in the new covenant. But rather, God is, you are also circumcised with a circumcised made, circumcision made without hands, Earthly circumcision on the flesh, the foreskin of the male is made with hands, but you've been circumcised with something without hands by putting off the body of sins, what's been cut away? The body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. When you put on Christ, when your faith is in Christ, God cuts away the sin. He takes it away. That's the picture of circumcision in the Old Covenant. That was its purpose. God says, I'm giving you a promise. I will will put away your sins. But I'm going to do it through a person at a later time. And circumcision in the Old Covenant was pointing to that act where Christ would die on the cross, taking away our sins. Okay? In Him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That's what Paul's telling us here. Then he says, verse 12, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Here Paul states, the Colossian believers were indeed circumcised, but not with hands, but by the cutting away of their sins, by the circumcision of Christ. In other words, the bloody death of Christ was our circumcision. The cleansing from sin of those who by faith trust in the sacrifice of Christ. This is the the nature of the cleansing ritual of circumcision. But it had to be done, Paul says in Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So this had to be accomplished by that act of Christ on the cross. 
Now, we must not lose sight of the fact that circumcision in the Old Covenant was the cleansing ritual, and it signified the cleansing from sin for the Old Covenant believer. Was that changed in the New Covenant? That's a question. Was it changed in the New Covenant? Is the necessity of cleansing from sin any less important in the Old Covenant as it is in the New? No, I think it was just as important in both covenants. The difference being that the Old Covenant sign of shedding blood is accomplished in Christ's death on the cross. Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Did he not say that in Matthew chapter 5? And what was the law pointing to? The remitting of sins. Even in the passage here, Paul talks about the law itself is the thing that condemns us because we cannot keep it. We cannot keep it. So something has to happen for us to be, become righteous in the sight of God. And Jesus does that on the cross and in his resurrection. This is Paul's primary point. We have been circumcised in Christ, washed in his blood for the remitting of our sins. Circumcision has not been abolished. It's been completed. That's the notion that we have to get in our heads. Circumcision has not been abolished. It's been completed. And without, the, without our hands, it's been completed in Christ's death. So then, what remains? If circumcision res- represents a bloody death then what does baptism represent? Our passage clearly states that baptism is the representation of the resurrection. Buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Baptism visualizes for us the washing of regeneration, the scriptures teach us, and the newness of life. The bloody ritual pointing to the cross that has taken away the curse of sin is now turned to baptism, which focuses our attention on the new life in Christ. I believe that's what Paul is teaching in our passage. Circumcision takes us up to the point of Christ's death on the cross. Baptism, once we've been washed with, uh, once we, our sins have been forgiven in the blood of Christ, we are washed for newness of life. Brethren, this gives meaning. If you think about Christ's baptism, why was he baptized? He wasn't baptized because he was a sinner. He he hadn't sinned. Now the Bible would say later, Paul writes to us and says, Jesus became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He will take upon himself the sins of the world, the scriptures teach us, and he will ransom for us uh, our redemption by doing that. But he wasn't baptized for that. He was receiving a covenantal promise of eternal life that would be realized in his resurrection. And I believe this is one of the reasons Jesus was baptized. Paul then explains how this applies to the believer. And you, being dead in your trespasses, and, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, verse 13, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped away the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. 
Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Jesus has done what? Well, we were dead in our trespasses and in the uncircumcision of our flesh, but now we're circumcised in Christ at the cross. And we've been given newness of life. And we've been raised in our baptism by that. Here we see that the old covenant requirement of the circumcision ritual has been taken out of the way, having been nailed to the cross. In other words, having been accomplished by Christ. Jesus triumphs over sin on the cross and he triumphs over death in his resurrection. These are the two great powers of Satan and his minions and they've both been put away such that Jesus, in dying on the cross and rising from the dead, has disarmed principalities and powers. When you see that principalities and powers there, think Satan and his minions. And he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in that. Satan thought he'd won for three days, and then Jesus rose from the dead. And he lost. Forever. Now, what is absent here from the discussion by Paul is a reference to the recipients of the new covenant sign, baptism. What's absent is that. The sign has changed, but is there a change in the recipients of the sign? Is there continuity between the covenants or is there discontinuity? I think Paul's dealing with the discontinuity because that's the problem in the first century church. Do we keep doing circumcision or do we stop? That's the problem. Paul says stop circumcision. It's done in Christ. He says nothing about those who received the sign, does he? If that were an issue, don't you think he would have brought it up? I think so. Now, I'm making an argument from silence, so i got to admit that. But if my hermeneutic is correct, that we are to abide by the teachings of the Old Covenant, or the Old Testament, until they're either abrogated or modified in the New, I see no modification on the recipients of the sign, either in this passage or any other passage in the Scripture, in the New Testament. Does the change in the sign necessarily require a change in the recipient? I say no. I believe this position of interpretation is particularly problematic when we couple together our understandings of the doctrines of scriptures with the doctrine of God's immutability. Did not Paul write to us in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is given by God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness that the man of God would be thoroughly equipped unto every good work? 2 Timothy 3.16 Now let me ask this question, brethren. Did the New Testament exist when Paul wrote those words? The answer is no. Most of it had not been codified yet. And yet Paul is writing saying there is sufficient Scripture to understand all that's necessary for godliness and righteousness. In the Old Covenant, I believe Paul is teaching there is a great continuity Furthermore, when we look at Malachi's prophecy and we look at chapter 3, we have this very salient statement. 
I am God, I do not change. Now he appends to that the phrase, therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. That's in Micah 3.6. Did I say Malachi? It is Malachi, I'm sorry. Not Micah, Malachi. It's Malachi. Malachi 3.6. Brethren, we are sons of Abraham, according to Paul's writings in, in Romans 4 and 5. And consequently then, sons of Jacob, are we not? Because they're of the lineage of Abraham. Jacob was of the lineage of Abraham. I'm going to speak about Jacob here in a minute. But given these two assertions by the Scripture, first, we should conclude that covenantal inclusion of children, covenantal inclusion of children should not cease in the new covenant, but they should remain as it was in the old covenant. After all, didn't Jesus explicitly say in Luke 18 that if infants inhabit the kingdom of God? Luke 18, 15 through 16 reads, And they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. He's talking about infants. Of such are the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. God's saying our faith has to be that simplistic. We merely believe in Christ and we are brought into the covenant community when we believe in Christ as our substitutionary atonement. And this is the kind of faith even infants can exhibit. Furthermore, when Peter preaches at Pentecost in Acts 2, he is asked by those who hear his sermon of repentance, what must we do? Remember they say that in Acts chapter 2? They're cut to the heart. What must we do? Peter responds, Repent and be baptized, for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord your God will call. Now if we couple Peter's words with those of Paul in Colossians 2, baptism is the sign of resurrection life. And in the Old Covenant, children receive the sign of promised forgiveness and circumcision. In the New Covenant, the promise of, of newness of life is for us and for our children, according to Peter. If the Old Covenant sign was necessarily given to infant children, as we saw in Genesis 17, where in the New Testament has a change been made regarding children? particularly in light of Jesus' explicit teaching about infants in Luke 18. So you see, there is continuity in the recipients. The discontinuity is in the sign itself. One points to Christ coming and dying for our, our, our salvation. The next sign points to the, the promised eternal life in the resurrection. How often the objection is made about those children who are baptized and do not exercise faith in Jesus and leave the covenant community. They think that those who argue against uh, baptism of infants argue that, wait a minute, not all of them continue in the faith. Well, isn't that true of those who are baptized as adults as well? Don't many of them 
leave the faith or turn on the faith. In fact, uh, Hebrews 6 talks about that very explicitly. If you turn on the faith uh, in your later years, you make a mockery of the Spirit. It's it's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So I I don't think that that's a good argument, but let's deal with it uh, from a biblical perspective. Do we have any any examples in the Scriptures about those who've been who were circumcised in the Old Covenant and didn't remain part of the faith. Well, we only have to look as far back as Genesis 17, the passage we read just this, this morning. Did Abraham circumcise Ishmael? At the end of the chapter, we read that very thing happened. Ishmael was circumcised. Now, many of us think, really? I remember when a friend of mine shared that with me years ago, and I, I recoiled. I said, i got to look that up. And Sure enough, it was right there. Ishmael was circumcised. Was Ishmael the recipient of the promise, the eternal promises? The answer is no. Ishmael's half-brother Isaac would receive that, those eternal promises, but Ishmael was indeed circumcised. A similar circumstance would also occur with Isaac's two sons, Jacob and Esau. Both were circumcised, But God said about Jacob that he loved him, but Esau he hated, even though he had received the sign of the covenant. The Scriptures teach us we are to act on the promises of God. We are to act on the promises of God. This is acting by faith. God says in both Testaments, I will be a God to you and to your children. Therefore, if the promise is to us and our children, Shouldn't the sign of the promise be for us and our children as well? God's going to sort out who remains faithful. He will sort that out. He will know who will be faithful and who won't, and will reward each accordingly. But we have not that power. We don't have the power to know those things. We can only act on the promises. And that's what God is teaching us. And this He has done when he teaches us about Ishmael and Isaac, as well as Esau and Jacob, he will sort out those things with children who are faithful and who are not. God sees all. He's sovereign over those things. And he will act upon them. For us, we are to act on the promises, not on the potential outcomes. We are to act on the promises, not the potential outcomes. So once again, brethren, I think our passage, both passages, Genesis 17 as well as Colossians 2, teach us that the just, those who have been justified in Christ Jesus, must live by faith in God's promises and act upon them. Let us pray together.